You're listening to a podcast by Redeemer Bible Church. Come visit us Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. or visit our website at RedeemerFortBend.org for more information. Thanks and enjoy. Legalism is a very popular word in Christian circles. But what does it really mean? Well, depending on who you ask, you'll get a different definition. Some people define legalism as the very false idea that we can earn our salvation by performing good works. Others consider legalism to refer to unwarranted intrusions into a Christian's liberty to decide for ourselves how we settle or resolve various debatable ethical questions. Others today label any preaching that asks us to seriously consider our lives in light of God's Word as legalistic. Legalism means many things to many people. And the only thing that all these definitions agree on is that legalism is bad. Um, Okay, but what actually is legalism? That's what we're going to talk today as we talk about today as we consider Matthew chapter 14 verse 34 through chapter 15 verse 20. And in today's passage, we're going to encounter the one example that virtually every churchgoer everywhere agrees represents legalism, we're going to encounter the Pharisees. And in our passage, the Pharisees are going to argue with Jesus. And their argument is going to help us distill four important truths about legalism. I'm not going to list them all for you. If you really want to know what my points are, they're printed in the bulletin. But I want to jump in right now and start with the first truth, which is that legalism defines moral defilement in terms of man-made rules. We pick up today where we left off last week in Matthew chapter 14. If you have a Bible, please turn there. And in our last two sermons from Matthew 14, we looked at a very eventful day in the life of Jesus and his disciples. Now, Jesus miraculously fed a crowd of more than 5,000 people, and then that evening, Jesus walked on the water, coming to rescue his disciples from a terrible storm at sea. And the last thing we saw was Matthew 14, verse 33, that those in the boat worshipped him, saying, truly, you are the Son of God. The disciples' difficult, long day has resulted in them having a deeper understanding of Jesus and a deeper trust in him. But as we come now to verse 34, it's a new day. Matthew 14, 34, and when they had crossed over the Sea of Galilee, they came to land at Gennesaret. Now, Gennesaret is a very beautiful area just south of Capernaum, which has been Jesus' home base for his ministry in Galilee. And because of how close he was to Capernaum, Jesus is almost immediately recognized by the people of Gennesaret. Verse 35. And when the men of that place recognized him, they sent all around to all that region and brought to him all who were sick and implored him that they might only touch the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. The power of Jesus is well known among these people. And they also seem familiar with miracles that Jesus has done in the past. Like a miracle he performed back in chapter 9. Where a woman had a chronic illness and it was healed as soon as she grabbed hold of a tassel that was on Jesus' garment. And these folks have such confidence in Jesus' abilities that they also ask just to touch his clothing believing that would be enough to heal them. 
And Jesus compassionately healed them as they did so. It was a great start to the day. But things were about to get complicated. The first complication is that the folks that Jesus had left behind on the other side of the Sea of Galilee decided that they wanted to find him again. After all, the night before, Jesus had miraculously fed them, and they'd like another free meal, thank you. So they chase him all the way around to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. But according to John 6, when Jesus encounters them again, he has some very hard words for them. He says, hey, you're not really interested in me. You just want to exploit my power. And he teaches them some very difficult things that they reject. And the crowds depart from him. But a second complication comes from a different group of people who are seeking an interaction with Jesus. And this is the incident that Matthew focuses on. And we meet these people in chapter 15, verse 1. Then Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem. So religious elites in the capital have heard about the immense popularity of Jesus, and they send a delegation north to look into him. They previously did this with John the Baptist when he was at the height of his popularity, and they do so now again with Jesus. Now, when you read the other Gospels, what you find is this is not the first time that a delegation has come from Jerusalem to meet Jesus. But this is the first time that Matthew calls attention to this happening. And I don't think that's an accident at all. Matthew is telling us this here for a very important reason, which is that very shortly in this book, Jesus is going to start talking about his need to go to Jerusalem. And then he's going to start to travel to Jerusalem. Jerusalem is about to become more and more important in this book. And as Jerusalem is now introduced in this book, Matthew uses this passage to preview what Jesus is going to find when he gets there. He is going to find intense debate. He is going to find intense antagonism. And he is going to find intense rejection. And our passage foreshadows all of this very clearly. Now, let's talk about these folks who have come to see Jesus, the Pharisees and the scribes. Judaism in the first century was not monolithic. While every Jew professed faith in Yahweh, they did not all agree on exactly what that faith should be. So there were different groups, different denominations, we might say. And really, they were more like political parties within first century Judaism. And the Pharisees were the largest and the most popular of these parties. Now, the Pharisees were not the party of the ruling class, but they were the favorite party of the common people because they were perceived to be very holy. That was what their movement claimed to be all about. They said, we're going to restore purity to Judaism because Judaism has been corrupted by worldliness. And the Pharisees were right. The Judaism of their day had been corrupted by worldliness. But the solution they offered was a bad solution. Instead of saying, let's return to God's word, the Pharisees instead said, let's make up our own rules, which go further than what the Bible actually says. And their logic went like this. If you're careful to obey our stricter rules then you won't even get close to violating what the Bible actually prohibits. So our man-made rules protect you from sinning. That was the idea. And the Pharisees took their own rules so seriously 
that they considered them to have equal authority to God's word itself. And they said if you breach our rules, it's just like breaching the, the commands of the Old Testament. It's sin. Now, beyond having these man-made rules, the Pharisees also cultivated a reputation for holiness by making a public show when they prayed or gave money to the poor. And that's why the Pharisees were seen by the average first century Jew as being very holy. Now, the scribes were similar to the Pharisees. Their main duty historically was they copied out the Old Testament by hand to preserve the scriptures for future generations. But because they spent so much time working with the biblical text, they came to be viewed as authoritative interpreters of the scripture. And the common people revered them as being great teachers of the Bible. All right, so the Pharisees and scribes are these two distinct groups. And yet they often agreed on religious questions because they both advocated returning to a more conservative and regulated form of Judaism than was practiced by many people in the first century. Because of this agreement, they often traveled together in the Gospels. Now, this delegation that comes to see Jesus is comprised of both scribes and Pharisees. And here's what they say, verse 1. And they said to Jesus, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. Immediately, we see this delegation has not come with an open mind wanting to learn more about Jesus. No, they have come with an accusation on their lips. Their assignment is apparently to accuse and discredit Jesus. And this shouldn't surprise us. Because from the very beginning of his ministry, Jesus strongly criticized the Pharisees and the scribes. Matthew 5.20, Jesus says, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus didn't think they were very holy. In fact, in chapter 5, Jesus at length shows how the Pharisees made up rules and the scribes' biblical interpretation often contradicted the scripture and stood directly opposed to what God actually wanted his people to be doing. So Jesus says, the Pharisees and scribes are false teachers headed for hell. And he calls them hypocrites in chapter 6. Actors who pretend to a righteousness that they don't really have. Now, unsurprisingly, when Jesus said things like this, it caused conflict between him and the local scribes and Pharisees. But the Galilean scribes and Pharisees were no match for Jesus. So they called in help from Jerusalem. And yet, even previous delegations from Jerusalem have been unable to discredit Jesus. Jesus' words are just too wise. His miracles are just too real. And so now this is the next group up going to try to stop Jesus. And the tactic they use here involves an accusation about hand-washing. Now, where does this accusation come from? Their charge is not grounded in the scriptures. Rather, they say that Jesus' disciples have transgressed the traditions of the elders. This is some very clever marketing on the part of the Pharisees. Because these traditions of the elders are really just their own recently invented nonsensical rules. But they want to make these rules sound really ancient and important, so they, they come up with this ridiculous name. But the real heart of the issue here is, Jesus' disciples are not submitting to their invented rules about hand washing. And the Pharisees say, that's sin. And when they say that's sin, they're not only attacking Jesus' disciples, they're charging Jesus with sin too. 
Because Jesus is the disciples' teacher. And the expectation would be that his disciples would follow his example. So if the disciples aren't washing their hands, well, is Jesus washing his hands? That's their question. And the answer was, no, he wasn't. Because we read in Luke 11, a Pharisee asked Jesus to dine with him. And the Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. Jesus did not submit to the Pharisaic rules about hand washing. Why? What exactly was this rule that Jesus and his disciples rejected? Well, when we think about hand washing today, we probably think about hygiene. That's not how the Pharisees thought about it. For the Pharisees, the issue was defilement. Their ideas probably came from some rules in the Old Testament about hand washing related to ceremonial uncleanness. Now, in the Jewish law, ceremonial uncleanness was not sin. You were ceremonially unclean if you came into contact with something dead or if your body was bleeding or oozing or diseased. And if you were ceremonially unclean, you could not approach God with a sacrifice at his temple until you performed these rituals involving washing. Now, the Pharisees took these ideas and expanded them greatly. They said, what's true of ceremonial uncleanness must also be true about moral defilement. It must be true about sin. So if ceremonial uncleanness can be contacted by touching the wrong thing or touching the wrong person, moral defilement must work in the same way. So they started constructing scenarios like this. Imagine you walk through a crowd and you brush against somebody with your hand. What if that person was guilty of sin? Now your hand is guilty of sin because you touched them with it. And then what if you put your defiled hand on a piece of bread? Now the bread is defiled. And then what if you ate the bread that was defiled? Now your heart is defiled. That was the way the Pharisees thought. And so they built this complex system of washings that said, well, if you do this, you don't have to worry. You'll be safe. That's their logic. And with that, they attack Jesus. And it's kind of clever. Because after all, Jesus and his disciples just walked through a big crowd, right? They were just touched by all of these people. The Pharisees must think, here's a chance. They're unclean. Mark 7 says they saw Jesus' disciples go eat with unwashed hands. You know, they were just waiting to see these guys put some food in their mouth. And then they moved in. Where's your hand washing? It's sin. That's the situation. Now, what should we take from this? The Pharisees' accusation here teaches us about the essence of legalism. Legalism is a religious system that thinks that righteousness is all about how we interact with things around us. It presupposes that we in ourselves are good and righteous and that things around us are dangerous and threaten to corrupt us. Now, legalism has three elements. First, it prescribes a code of conduct for righteousness that is not biblically justified. We've just seen that. The Pharisees claimed their rules about washing came from the scriptures, but in actuality there were several key differences between what the Bible actually said and what the Pharisees required. For instance, the washing rules of the Old Testament were about ceremonial uncleanness, not sin. And there is no biblical warrant at all for the idea that moral defilement jumps around between people on contact like some kind of contagion. 
And the Old Testament never required elaborate hand washing for every Jew before every meal. It only required washings for ceremonially unclean people who wanted to go to the temple. So what the Pharisees are doing here has zero legitimate justification from the Scripture. It is an unjustified attempt to take a command from one part of the Bible about ceremonial washings, and then they expand that command to be universally applicable to all Jews in all situations, not just those who are ceremonially unclean, and then they apply it in a different context. Now, it's not about going to the temple. Now, it's about eating. And I think legalism works along these same lines today. Someone takes a scriptural principle that appears in one part of the Bible, they expand that principle beyond what the Bible says, and they apply it in other contexts where the Bible doesn't speak to that. So, let's think for uh, a minute about a few examples. The Bible prohibits drunkenness. But then that prohibition becomes the basis for an unwarranted prohibition against all drinking, even though Jesus created wine at Cana, and the scriptures speak positively about wine on several occasions. Or, the biblical prohibition of sexual immorality becomes the basis for an unwarranted prohibition upon any dancing, even though dancing is repeatedly commended in the Bible as an expression of joy. Or, the biblical prohibition against women presenting themselves in ways that suggest sexual availability becomes the basis for an unwarranted prohibition upon ladies wearing cosmetics. But, you know, sometimes people come up with legalistic systems that don't even attempt to make a connection to the Bible. Like the Mormon prohibition of caffeine. Or the Catholic prohibition against eating meat on Fridays. Or the lady who a few years ago wrote a blog post that said Christians should not read fiction. All legalism begins with the creation of a rule for life that does not have a legitimate biblical justification. Now to be very clear. Where the Bible speaks, we must obey. And we're going to talk about that in a minute. But where the Bible does not speak with great clarity, that is not a vacuum that demands that we rush in and fill it with our own man-made regulations. Rather, that is an invitation for believers to exercise liberty in those areas, to make decisions consistent with our own understanding of God's will. For instance, Romans 14 says, One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats vegetables. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. In those situations, we have the freedom to decide for ourselves. But legalism hates that freedom. So it begins with a man-made rule. And then it continues with imposing that rule on other people. With the idea that adhering to the rule makes us righteous, but disobeying the rule constitutes sin. You know, sometimes people may find it useful to develop their own personal rules to guide their own conduct in some way or another. For instance, Billy Graham's famous rule about not being alone with women who were not his wife. That's not mandated in the scripture. But Billy Graham thought it was a useful rule to protect himself and his ministry. And that's fine. In the same way, if one of us developed rules for ourselves, reflecting our own unique consciences and weaknesses, there's nothing wrong with that, provided that we remember 
Our rules are voluntary and don't have the force of Scripture. The problem begins when I take my own rule that I've invented for myself and I say, this has the authority of God behind it. This is equal to a command of the Scripture. And then when I try to take that rule and impose it on you as a guideline for your life, that's when it crosses the line. That's when it becomes legalism. Friends, we must not follow the traditions of men. The Pharisees were wrong. Their man-made rules were not equal in authority to the Scripture. Just as the Catholic Church is wrong in asserting that its traditions are equal in authority to the Scripture. Just as legalists today are wrong in insisting that their man-made rules are equal to the Scripture in authority. Our conscience must be captive to the Word of God alone. And that's our second point which is that legalism hypocritically stands opposed to God's scripture, which must be obeyed. All right, so the Pharisees have attacked Jesus because his disciples aren't washing their hands. What's Jesus going to say to them? Look at verse 3. He answered them, And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? See, Jesus doesn't first start by talking about defilement or hand washing. He's going to talk about that again at the end of our passage. But first, he gives a blistering attack on the hypocrisy of the Pharisees and the scribes. You know, the Pharisees and scribes were so worried about transgression. You'd think the main thing they wouldn't want to transgress would be the word that God actually gave, right? But no. Jesus says they whined about their own man-made rules being broken, but they were okay with God's actual commandments being broken. And even worse, they permitted God's word to be violated in the name of their made-up traditions. Now, as Jesus makes this argument, he is challenging the entire Pharisaical system of man-made rules. If the Pharisaic traditions are opposed to the actual word of God, then those traditions are not good or holy or wise. Their whole system needs to be rejected. And that's Jesus' answer. Now, how do the Pharisaic traditions oppose God's word? Jesus explains in verse 4. He says, For God commanded, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. Now Jesus quotes here from two parts of the Old Testament law, from Exodus 20, verse 12, which is the fifth commandment, and he also quotes from Exodus 21, 17, which sentenced anybody who spoke disrespectfully about their parents to death. Those were God's words for Israel. Now, Jesus explains how the Pharisees' rules violated these commands. Look at verse 5. He says, But you say, Pharisees, if anyone tells his father or his mother, what you would have gained for me is given to God, he need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. The Scriptures told the Israelites to honor their parents. And that doesn't just mean obeying them when we live under the roof. It means we should speak well of our parents. And later in life, as our parents are entering their declining years, we should be willing to make financial contributions to help them. All of that is entailed in this command to honor parents. And believing, friends, we need to remember these same commandments are present in the New Testament. Ephesians 6.1 repeats this command, honor your father and your mother. And 1 Timothy 5 tells us that honor ordinarily includes financial assistance for aging parents. Listen to 1 Timothy 4, 5 verse 4. Let children or grandchildren first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. 
But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his own household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So we, we are to honor our parents, and that means we should be willing to help them financially as they age. Now, this is the issue Jesus is going to use to expose the Pharisees. Because while God says, take care of your aging parents financially, the Pharisees have invented a rule that allows people to get out of having to do that. And here's what they did. The Pharisees built this complex system of vows and oaths. And they said, you can take a vow and declare all of your property to be a gift to God. Now, your gifted property didn't actually have to be turned over to the religious authorities until you died. So you got to keep using your property. But by saying it's a gift to God, you were legally barred from using that property to benefit anybody else, including your parents. And Jesus says, people are using this vow to avoid the financial obligations that God said they owed to their parents in their declining years. These folks were sinning, and the Pharisees' rules permitted it. And their tradition allowed God's command to be nullified. And worse, it made people think that by conforming to the Pharisees' rules, they were okay with God, and they didn't have to obey God's word anymore. And Jesus won't tolerate that one bit. He says, this is evil, and he speaks bluntly. Verse 7, he says, you hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. The quotation here is from the Greek version of Isaiah 29, 13, in which Isaiah speaks against the Jewish religious elites of his day who happened to be from Jerusalem, who observed empty forms of worship, who did not love or fear God, who taught their own lies and self-justifications, and as a result, God rejected them. And Jesus says that passage about Isaiah's generation also spoke prophetically about the Pharisees and scribes of his day. They also came from Jerusalem. They also made a false show of godliness. Their hearts were also far from God. They also taught lies and self-justifications, and God has also rejected them. Now, what should we take from all of this? I know there's a lot of like historical background here. What should we take from this? Two things. First, it is not legalism to insist that believers should obey the Bible. Over the last several years, I have heard this again and again from professing Christians, that it is legalistic to insist that believers should obey the Scriptures. Friends, that is false. That is not legalism. In our passage, we see Jesus quote the Scripture about honoring our parents. And his clear expectation is that command should be obeyed. That's not legalism. That's what it means to belong to God. That's what it means to be a Christian, that we follow Jesus. Obedience to him should be an ordinary part of our lives. And yes, we will fail. Sometimes we will fail a lot. Sometimes we will fail terribly. But ordinarily, our posture should be obedience towards Christ and his word. Jesus said in John 10, 27, My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. Luke 6, 46, he says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Jesus expects those who belong to him should obey him. Likewise, James 1, 22 says, Be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving yourselves. 
There is an expectation that if we belong to Christ, we should obey his commands. The commands that he spoke directly and the commands he spoke through his apostles and the other writers of the New Testament. Now to be very clear here, I'm talking right now about how believers relate to Christ. If you are not a believer, you need to understand you cannot be saved by trying to obey the New Testament commands. That won't save you. Salvation is by grace alone, through repentant faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. You cannot earn or merit salvation by works. But if you already belong to Christ by faith, then obedience should be our ordinary posture. 1 John 2, 3 says this, By this we know, that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Saying believers ought to obey isn't legalism, it's biblical. But the second thing I want to point out here is that legalism often travels with hypocrisy, with pretended righteousness. The Pharisees demonstrated a false righteousness by being hyper-scrupulous about their invented rules while being indifferent to and opposed to God's commands. And legalists today likewise demonstrate hypocrisy. This can happen in two ways, and I'm going to give you some examples. Number one, legalists often fail to live up to their own man-made standards. A number of years ago, my parents were attending a very unhealthy church with a lot of legalism. And a lot of it came from their youth pastor's wife, who she was great at inventing rules that she imposed on other women in the church. And one of her rules was, uh, ladies, you better not be wearing toenail polish. Uh, but of course, a few weeks later, there was a scandal when someone noticed at church that she was wearing toenail polish. She couldn't even live up to her own minor made-up rule. That's one type of hypocrisy. But second, legalists often obsess about the minutia of their own invented rules like the Pharisees did, while ignoring the weightier demands of God's legitimate commands. So, a few years ago, my wife cut her hair uh, to her shoulders. Another young lady criticized her sharply for her new shorter haircut as being ungodly. A little while later, that same young lady became an adulteress and thought nothing of it. This is the classic hypocrisy of the legalist. Jesus puts it like this in chapter 23. When he describes the Pharisees like this, he says, you strain at a gnat and you swallow a camel. They get all worked up about debatable liberty issues while disobeying the clear, explicit demands of Scripture. Friends, the hypocrisy of a legalist is axiomatic for a reason. It happens so often, it's something we should expect. So we've seen it's not legalism that we should obey the scriptures, but legalism is creating a man-made code of conduct, which we impose on others and claim that it's a sin to disobey. And those who perpetrate legalism are very often susceptible to hypocrisy. All right, the last two points are shorter, so bear with me. All All right, we come now to our third point, which is that legalism has to be dealt with. But how? How do we respond when someone is trying to impose a rule on us that doesn't seem biblical? The first thing I would say is we need to ask them to justify their rule. 
ask them to point us to chapter and verse so that we can examine whatever scriptural justification their ideas have. If they don't have any, reject what they're saying. But if they do, read the scripture very closely. Examine it honestly in its context. Friends, if the scripture is really speaking about your situation or seems to be very, very closely related to your situation and legitimately applicable to your situation, we need to humble ourselves and we need to obey what God says. Because that's not a man-made rule, that's God's word. But if what they're saying is not in line with what is printed on the page of God's word, or if it is taking some biblical principle out of context, or expanding some biblical command far beyond what is actually written on the page, I would not submit to that rule. But let's say somebody tries to impose a rule like that on you. And after examining it, you say, I'm not convinced this is biblical. What should you do then? Friends, we need to actively resist it. Very often when legalistic people are around, what happens is everybody else just becomes afraid of offending them and falls in line with whatever the legalists want to do because that's the path of least resistance. Friends, that is not the correct response. We are not called to bind our consciences to appease legalists. Rather, Paul in Galatians 2 tells us what to do. He says, false brothers slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us into slavery. To them, we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. Legalism cannot be abided even for a moment because we need to protect the truth of the gospel. Righteousness does not come from obeying man-made rules. It comes from faith in Christ. And we want to preserve the true ethical entailments of the gospel. The believers should obey God's word, not phony ethics that came out of somebody's imagination. And not only should we resist a false legalistic rule that someone has imposed on us, but we should do what Jesus does in verses 3 through 9. We should challenge those rules, and we should call the legalists to repent. Now, very often, people who try to impose legalists on us are not the inventors of the rules they want to impose on us. Usually, they're just passing on traditions they picked up from somebody else that they did not examine critically. So we don't need to, to, to confront them as sharply as Jesus confronted the Pharisees. We can do it in a softer way. But we should call their attention to the problem. However, when someone has invented a rule that they're trying to impose on us, or when someone has refused to repent after we've talked to them and asked them to repent of their legalism, and they keep trying to put that rule on us, I think we should be direct like Jesus is in verses 3 through 9. And not only should we speak the truth to them very clearly, but we need to recognize that often a dispute about legalism cannot remain private. Because legalists are usually not out just to convince you about your behavior. Usually they want to convince everybody about their behavior. And because of that attempt to influence many people, very often legalism has to be publicly confronted. And that's what Jesus does in verse 10. Verse 10, And he called the people to him and said to them, Hear and understand. It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a person. See, Jesus is not content for this to remain some heady academic debate. The stakes are too high. People are ignoring God's word because they're trusting the Pharisees made up rules. This has to end. 
And Jesus, who has compassion on the sick and the lost, has compassion also on the confused and the deceived. And so he regathers the crowd at Gennesaret, and he speaks to them while the Pharisees are still standing there. And he tells them, hey, the Pharisees' doctrine of defilement is false. Not just their doctrine of hand-washing. The whole idea that defilement is something we pick up from interacting with things outside of us, Jesus says it's a lie. Now, that might seem awkward to us, having to call somebody out publicly like this. It might seem impolite. But friends, some issues are beyond good manners. Jesus is not content for the people of Gennesaret to be deceived by Pharisaic legalism, so he publicly exposes it. But that is not Jesus' only response. Look at verse 12. Then the disciples came and said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? Jesus knew what the Pharisees were. He wasn't taken in by their pretend holiness. But you know, many of the disciples would have grown up hearing about how wonderful and holy the Pharisees were. So they were a little worried. Should Jesus really be rebuking the Pharisees like that? But you know, Jesus is not worried about this idea he has offended the Pharisees with the truth. And he wants the disciples to stop being in awe of them too. Look at verse 13. He answered, Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone. They are blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. Jesus says three things about the Pharisees here. First, he says they're headed for eternal condemnation. Jesus says their source is not God and they're going to get uprooted. And this sounds a lot like what Jesus said back in chapter 13 in his parable about the wheat and the weeds. Jesus said, an enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat. And at harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first to be burned. So it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send His angels, and they will gather out of His kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. The Pharisees are interlopers. They and their false doctrines reflect Satan, not God. So they're going to face judgment. Second, Jesus says they're blind guides. Back in chapter 11, Jesus said, No one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. But the Pharisees don't know the Father because they won't recognize the Son. And 2 Corinthians 4 tells us that means they've been blinded by Satan. The Pharisees are spiritually dead, and they are spiritually blind. And Jesus says following them will lead to disaster. I wasn't sure I was going to tell this story, but I think I will. Uh, About 30 years ago in my family, uh, there was a lady who liked to drive, Um, but she was blind. And so what she did was she had a mentally impaired lady sit next to her and tell her when she should brake and when she should turn. Unsurprisingly, this did not end well. Uh, My great-grandmother was in the back seat and the car wound up hanging over the median and the police were shocked by what they saw. Friends, it's not good when you've got a blind person driving, right? And that's what Jesus says the Pharisees are going to do. They're going to drive you into the ditch. Don't follow legalists. And so all of this leads to the third thing that Jesus says, which is a command to his disciples. He says, leave them alone. Don't hang out with them. Don't listen to them. Don't admire them. Avoid them. If we have called a legalist to repent and they won't stop trying to force man-made rules on people, avoid them. If this happens in the church, it's time for church discipline. 
If this happens outside the church socially, I would say do not submit to what they're selling. And if you've got friends in, in, that are trying to dominate you with fake rules, disassociate with them. Because you don't want to wind up chained to a blind guide who's going to lead you into a spiritual ditch. You want to follow Jesus and submit to only what God says in his word. But we come now to our last and really our most important point. And this is what the, the truth about defilement that legalism denies. See, the, fairy, the Pharisees think that humans are innately good. And that moral defilement is contagious. That we're corrupted by our interactions with those things around us and the things of the world. And second, they think that moral defilement is something that can be cured through hand washing. But they're wrong on both counts. They're wrong about where defilement starts, and they're wrong about how it's fixed. We find out that they're wrong about how defilement starts, uh, beginning in verse 15. But Peter said to Jesus, explain the parable to us. And the parable he's talking about is Jesus' statement back in verse 11, that it's not what goes into the mouth that defiles somebody, but what goes out of the mouth. That defiles a person. That might not seem like us to a par- to, that may not sound like a parable to us, because most of the time Jesus' parables are stories. But strictly speaking, a parable is any kind of cryptic statement that conceals a spiritual truth. And Jesus' statement here could seem a bit cryptic. So the disciples say, we need an explanation. But Jesus is taken aback by this, verse 16. And he said, are you also still without understanding? It's a very strong statement he makes here in Greek. He is dismayed by their lack of comprehension. They have been with him for some time now. They have heard his parables. They have listened to his sermons. They ought to know what he means without any extra help, but they don't. They still need their hands held. And so he graciously obliges and gives them a clear explanation. Verse 17. Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? The Pharisee said, if you touch an unclean person, your hand is defiled. And then if you touch the bread, the bread's defiled. And then if you eat the bread, you're defiled. Jesus says, it's nonsense. The food you eat can't corrupt your heart because it goes through your digestive system and it goes out of you. Food can't corrupt you. Because at the end of the day, moral defilement is not about avoiding dangerous external things that we interact with. It's not about what we eat or what we touch. And friends, this Truth has been a huge area of stumbling for evangelical Christians over the last century. In the last century, there have been many Christians who say, we are corrupted by listening to the world's music or watching the world's movies or dancing or drinking or reading fiction. And the solution they propose is that if we just abstain from all those things, we're going to be okay. If we just seal ourselves in an evangelical bubble and listen to evangelical music and watch evangelical movies and become teetotalers and have weddings without dancing and only read Christian books, then we're going to be safe and happy and holy and we're going to keep the evil out there. But friends, it's a lie because the source of defilement is not outside of us. I wish it were. It would make it so much easier. But the truth is worse than what the Pharisees think. It's, tr- it's worse than what we think. Friends, and Jesus now tells us what that truth is in verse 18. But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. And this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. Defilement does not come from interacting with things outside of us. Because defilement is already inside of us. It comes from our own fallen hearts. 
Friends, the problem isn't out there, it's in here. Because we are evil. We are fallen and depraved and have been since the fall. Genesis 6 says, The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That's not a positive estimation of humanity, is it? Even after the flood, God says, The intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. We are all bent towards evil. Our thinking spews up wickedness all the time. And maybe you sit here and say, I don't believe that. Maybe I've got an optimistic view of human nature. Friend, you are deceived. Because Jeremiah 17 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? If you think the Bible's wrong, if you think that you are virtuous and righteous and upstanding, you have been deceived by the wickedness of your own heart. Friends, evil isn't out there somewhere. It's in us. And it wants to spew forth into evil actions. We are evil by choice, yes, but also by nature. Why do we slander and revile people? Why do we lie? Why do we steal? Why do we lust? Why do we have immoral sex? Why do we hate? Why do we kill? Why are we so drawn to what God despises? Because naturally the human heart is a cesspool of evil. It is the opposite of all that is acceptable to God. Romans 8 says, The mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. That's where our moral defilement comes. That's the root of our sin problem. It's us. And so the solution to moral defilement must address more than just how we deal with external things. A ritual hand washing isn't going to cleanse our hearts. Abstention from the world can't renew our inner lives. Jesus says later in this book, you blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate that the outside also may be clean. We can't just clean the outside and pretend that we're good with God. We cannot just withdraw or abstain from the world and pretend that's enough. We need to be clean inside. We need a new heart. We need to be made new. And friends, there's great news, which is that God told the ancient Israelites in Ezekiel 36, a day was coming when I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And friends, that day has come. The new covenant has been inaugurated because Jesus has died. A new heart and a new spirit are available to everyone, Jew or Gentile, who believes, who casts themselves upon the mercy of Christ. Jesus has died for our sins and risen. Jesus says in John 3, Truly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Friends, we've got to be born again. We've got to be born from above. We must be made new. And if we come to Christ, then Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, if, any was in, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And friends, that's what God wants from us. Not just the external, not legalism. Galatians 6 says, Neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. That's our big need. That's what God wants. And only Jesus can do that for us. Now, I must caution us here. We are made new by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. But once we're made new, we still got to war against the flesh. For while something within us has been renewed, we're not yet in the resurrection body. 
The flesh and its evil desires still lurk in us. The cross gives us freedom from the power of sin, but we can still wind up choosing to sin and sin terribly. We must not see this passage as a license for folly and evil. It's often misused this way. Defilement's in the inside, not the outside, so once I've been made new, I can indulge in anything, right? No. Because once we've been made new by Christ, we're to keep following Him and we are to obey His commands. And that means we do have to be careful. Because 1 Corinthians 15 says, bad company ruins good morals. Things outside of us can stumble us into sin. They aren't the source of our corruption, but they can awaken the corrupt desires within us. So we've got to be wise. Friends, there are some things we must entirely reject. Idolatry, the occult, pornography, narcotics, and things like these have no purpose other than to stumble us into sin. Other things that are not nearly so explicitly evil may still wind up stumbling us anyway. Maybe because we have a predisposition to be stumbled by them, like many people do with alcohol. Or just because we engage with them in a thoughtless way that lacks self-control. There have been times where I'm singing a song on the radio, and I think, oh, this is a great song, and then later I realize, man, I was singing something that was pretty despicable, and it's been influencing the way I'm thinking. doesn't mean I should stop listening to the radio, but it does mean that when I engage with the world, I've got to keep my mind engaged. I've got to continually examine the inputs that it's sending my way, and I've got to continually examine my response to those inputs, and I've got to be willing to walk away from inputs that I see are awakening evil desires in me. I think it's the same for all of us. Friends, be wise and guard your hearts. I'm not legalistically saying that we cannot interact with the world, but I am saying do not interact with the world in an uncritical way because its ruler is Satan and he wants to destroy us. And because Jesus calls us to holy living, so we've got to fight to guard our hearts. So I hope to conclude this morning, we've seen what legalism is and how we should deal with it. I hope we've seen that the problem of moral defilement in the end cannot be cured by legalism. We've got to be made new by Jesus. If you have never come to Christ, cast yourself on His mercy and be saved. But if you do know Jesus, then today let us draw near to Him, as Hebrews 10 says, with a true heart, in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience.